So it was good to um, be um, back here. Uh, Corey's a really, really good dear friend of mine, and um, it's just um, a wonderful time uh, being here at the church. And I see so many of y'all who are friends are here, so I'm just thanks again for having me. And um, before we get started, I want to kind of do um, just a little um, bit of an introduction to this conference that we're hosting, March 23rd through the 25th. Um, we travel a lot around the country uh, teaching about the practical stuff of reconciliation and, and, and increasing folks' um, cultural intelligence. And even what we're going to talk about today is kind of a, it's kind of a bedrock type of uh, um, aspect of our ministry, some principles that we teach. But on March 23rd to the 25th, right down the street at Western Assembly of God, we're going to host a national conference here. And we're, uh, we're going to be recording it, and eventually it's going to be small group study. But we would love for you all to be the um, kind of um, guinea pigs for us, you know, um, come. And so here's some of the people that are coming. Um, this, so we got Native American brothers and sisters. Um, the Asian sister is one of the people uh, from Willow Creek. Um, Alexia Salvatierra wrote this book called Faith Through the Organizing. Uh, she is one of the uh, foremost authorities on, on immigration. And so we oftentimes don't get a chance to interact with folks who um, are experts in these various aspects of um, reconciliation and cultural intelligence and things. And okay, it did look weird. I was like, why does everybody look like they are demon-possessed? But, <laughs> but I was... Okay, so great. Thanks, Alex. Alex is really great, y'all. Just give him a bonus. Um, yeah, so these are all these different folks uh, that are here. These are national speakers. Ken Weissma, who um, is the founder of the Justice Conference, is up in Chicago. Um, these are people who advise me on the conversations of things that we talk about. They're going to be at this conference um, here in Richmond. I um, called in my friend rate and all that kind of stuff and all my favors. And so I really encourage you to do this um, here. Um, we got one church is committed to bring 100 people um, to this conference. And so since Corey is really competitive, I'm expecting 150 from third. All right, so let me just read this quote. Um, Y'all know it's been some really tough times over the past two years. You know, and, and, and this, this, is, this is something that has been a, a significant challenge on various um, factors and um, it's, it's, not just, it's not just about partisan politics, but we are just really in some really, really challenging times. And there's this one guy that has, um, I think, really named it really, really well, particularly as it relates to the church's involvement. And he said it this way, he says, but the judgment of God is upon the church as never before. If today's church does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its, its authenticity forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irreverent social club with no meaning for the 20th century. Every day I meet young people whose disappointment with the church has turned into outright disgust. Has anybody noticed this? I mean, don't you think that this person has uh, um, kind of diagnosed the situation pretty well? Anybody have an idea who said this? It wasn't quite Jesus, but that's a good Sunday school answer, though. <laughs> Second best is Dr. Martin Luther King. Like, you know, 
Dr. King said this in his Birmingham jail, Birmingham jail letter. That's over 50 years ago. And he was appealing to uh, white evangelicals to engage in the ministry reconciliation and the civil rights uh, um, um, challenges. And, and he said back then that young people um, are, are looking for the church and they, was being applied, they want to believe in the church, but they get disappointed um, when we don't get this whole reconciliation, this whole cultural, cross-cultural engagement thing um, right. So this is true, and I want to, as we start this conversation, to kind of help realize what we're going to talk about, there are going to be two type of perspectives of, of engaging in this, and, and I think this is where the divide comes generationally. There's going to be a boomer, an older experience that has happened, the way people interpret information. Those are those who experienced Jim Crow. Those are those that have experienced the trauma, whether, um, whether you're one who was a minority during the Jim Crow era, whether you um, were a person that was a perpetrator of um, some of the bad things of Jim Crow, or you were a person that witnessed it. You know, there is almost like a PTSD that's kind of happening in our society of, of, of people that experience that traumatic dehumanization of people. And then there is um, another way of, of, of receiving and interpreting this information, and that is from Gen, Gen X and younger. These are people that didn't experience the Jim Crow. So these are folks that would have went to school with somebody of a different race or ethnicity. And so the, a lot of that Jim Crow baggage isn't part of the conversation. So anybody my age, it's not a big deal for us to be friends because we could have went to school together. We could have uh, um, played on a basketball team together or played in a, um, a band or something like th that together. And so the, part of how we're going to experience this information and how do we engage in cross-cultural intelligence is going to be interpreted uh, generationally. And so pay attention a little bit to that. So for boomers and older generations, one of the ways that we were, uh, that you all were encouraged to overcome Jim Crow racism was to do something called colorblindness. To, and it comes from a really good space. Dr. King in his I Have a Dream speech said this, I have a dream that my four children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, by the content of their character. And what people have taken from that is that we should um, not judge one another solely from the color. And so that is a very true statement. While at the same time, if we take a colorblind approach, then we end up being culture blind and we kind of dismiss some of the cultural differences and we don't have language in which to talk about certain things. And we can, tell, we can see now that um, for the past 50 years doing a colorblind approach hasn't 100% uh, been, been uh, uh, fully helpful either. So, so what are some of the choices? Well, some of the choices to increase our cultural intelligence and to begin to um, understand how to engage cross-culturally. So I want to just kind of encourage some kind of boom and older folks as we engage in this to have that in mind. I also want to update us a little bit on just the context of this conversation. 40% of millennials are people of color. So what that means is, is that if you're a millennial, then most likely, uh, if you're a white millennial, 40% of the people that you know uh, um, are probably going to be a person of color. 
So the way millennials are experiencing diversity, it's like not a, it's not a big deal. It's a normalized thing. I, yesterday I was at uh, Farouk's House in India. It's one of my favorite restaurants. And um, Danny's laughing because he doesn't like it, but I don't, I don't have a... <laughs> I, you know, I'm new to the game. You know, Danny, I'm sorry, man. So, like... <laughs> so, uh, generally when I'm there, I'm there in the evening or a time with, or during a uh, weekday where kids are at school. But what was really, really fascinating was that they were like, they looked like high school age kids. Um, I'm kind of at the age now where I can't tell the difference between high school age and college <laughs> students yet, but I think they were high school students. And it was the most racially diverse group of young people that were uh, there and character at the Indian restaurant. When I was growing up, like, I didn't know that that was like a thing. Like, we just had soul food and white people's food. Like, that was the only <laughs> choices. But diversity is something that is happening on a regular basis and everywhere except when they come to the church. It's the most segregated uh, uh, um, hour still, even after King said it almost 50 years ago. So there's a significant gospel credibility thing um, that takes this conversation to a different level. So here's what I want everybody to do. I want you to take out your cell phone, and I want you to look at the last 10 calls that you've um, had, and look at the kind of demographics of the people of the last 10 calls you had or the last 10 text messages that you had. Now, I'm not looking at your cell phone, so I don't know. But according to statistics, most likely they're going to have the same socioeconomic, racial, ethnic, educational level as you. And so this, this should tell you a couple of things. One is we as a community, as a church, can't engage in true reconciliation and increase our cultural intelligence until we begin to diversify our cell phones. This speaks to the kind of intimate relationships that we have. This speaks to the kind of people that we do, like who is shaping our worldview. Another thing this should tell us is that we're going to hear information that will be different than the people that be on the cell phone. And if our cell phone is indiverse, then we can't confirm uh, um, the, 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 the all of like whether it's true or not based off of like who's on our cell phone or who's on our book reading list or who do we watch and our social media, because in, in essence, we end up having an echo chamber of people that think just like us. And so I just want to kind of help to do some, this is one thing that you could do. You can try to be intentional about diversifying your cell phone calls and text messages. So let's talk a little bit about like, hey, how does third as a church engage, um, increase cultural intelligence and engage cross-culturally. And this is something that we could do, because I only got like an hour, and I do come from an African-American experience, and so talking back is a great thing. You know, uh, smiling is also a nice thing. And so um, uh, um, preaching is a dialogue, not a monologue, or public speaking is. And so um, the more feedback you get, the shorter the messages get to be. So. 
It's your choice. All right. <laughs> All right, so, so a lot of times when we talk about diversity, we're having a conversation about something that's like, it's like an iceberg, where on the top you see things on a surface level, you either see that it is diverse or it's not diverse. So here, this would be considered a not diverse kind of space. And we would look at that and be like, hey, I don't know what's going on, but you know, we love people. And I say, yes. Like, I don't think there's one Jim Crow racist person in this room. Matter of fact, in our society, there are very few people who are actually textbook Jim Crow racist kind of folks. Yet, there is something that's going on that uh, um, even after 50 years later, we still have the segregation going on, even though the laws have changed, the sociology hasn't changed. So we got to look underneath the surface to figure out what's going on sociologically. And then as a church community, it's not, we, we aren't um, absent of sociological realities. We wrestle with sociological realities, but one of the things that's real important as a Christian is that uh, as Christians, it's not the sociology that should only determine our reality, it's our theology should determine our reality. So our theology should shape our sociology, and our sociology and theology will shape what we see on top of the surface. Does that make sense? All right, cool. So our theology starts with Jesus. All of us are here today because of who? See, that, see, I told you it was going to be that. You almost had it. You were a little early, though. That's all. <laughs> so we got the Jesus answer. So Jesus is the bedrock of our theology. Now, down in Florida, there's this um, thing called the Holy Land Experience. Has anybody heard of this? Like, so these people, they recreated the time of Jerusalem like the way that Jesus um, had it in his day. And you kind of go through the life of Jesus, and you walk through the steps where Jesus walks through, and you do certain things. And like at the end, the whole culmination of this is that they have a time where you do communion, and like Jesus serves you communion. And so my friend, his, his mom is a very charismatic uh, uh, woman, so that I mean, like, she'll break out in a prayer, she'll break out in a praise at any moment. And so this communion service where Jesus is giving her the bread and giving her wine, I mean, it is one of the most, like, emotional, spiritual situations that she was, like, in. And she's just worshiping God. She's praying. She's weeping. I mean, it's just a really, she was having a great moment of worship with God. So she finally collected herself. And um, when it came time to leave, she walked out and she ended up seeing uh, Jesus on the side smoking a cigarette. <laughs> Let's just say that was a little disappointing, you know? <laughs> you know, I think that is one of the things, uh, a good example of what it's like when young people realize that Jesus isn't white. And you would think that, like, white Jesus isn't that big of a deal. But, you know, white Jesus represents a culture. You know, white Jesus represents um, something. 
And I think young people need to not engage with white Jesus, but Jesus of the Bible. And here's the thing. You might say, hey, you know, what's the big deal about white Jesus? Because, like, if you go to China, like, Jesus is going to probably look like a Chinese person. Um, If you go to, like, somewhere in South America, Jesus is going to look like a South American. If you go to the Philippines, Jesus is going to look like like a, a Filipino. Well, this is true. And I think what this tells us is that we can't get an accurate, uh, um, accurate picture of Jesus until we get, we're looking through multi-ethnic lenses. The way John Scott, Scott says it, he says that we need to kind of like wash the face of Jesus so that we can get a clear picture of Jesus because our, our, our culture kind of uh, distorts Jesus because our culture is, is just both made in the image of God, but then also was like flawed. So we have cultural blind spots and different things of that nature. And one of the things that's real important, particularly of a white Jesus, when like white people are part of dominant culture, we got to say, is our version of Jesus a biblical version of Jesus? Well, before we jump into who Jesus is, we got to first understand um, a little bit of what is, what is it white? What is white culture? Well, You might be wondering, where did white culture come from? So, like, when you're in England and you're in Europe, people have white skin, yet they're English, right? If they're in France, uh, they have white skin, but they're what? And if they're in Italy, uh, they have uh, uh, white skin, but they're what? But when they cross the Atlantic, they become what? White. So like Andrew Fuller, who's from England, he is just a white guy that talks funny, you know? Like, <laughs> like how come you don't have a southern accent, right? Like, where did that come from? Now, you might be one thinking, it probably came from Portland, Oregon. But not really. Whiteness didn't come from Portland, Oregon. It came from here in Richmond. There was this thing called... Nathaniel Bacon, uh, rebellion. Nathaniel Bacon um, had this like revolt where at the time, around 1600s, um, there were, you had this elite um, planters, these guys that owned plantations. You had indentured servants, you had slaves, you had captured Indians. And so what they did, Nathaniel Bacon said, hey, there are more of us than there are of them. So let's do this. Let's go ahead and um, pull together, and we're going to overcome these uh, um, um, planters and these people that own these plantations, and they almost won. Some, some situations happen, and then they end up losing. And so what the, the, the landowners did was they said, hey, we need to figure out a way to, to divide the poor people. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to say, hey, you all, if you have black skin, we're going to assume that you are a slave. And if you have white skin, we're going to assume that you're not a slave. And you, even if you're a servant, you're going to be what we call a Christian servant. And so what this does is gives you access to live in society and access to become a citizen. And for you, 
your assumption is, is that you don't belong and that you're supposed to be a slave. And laws began to be made based off of the color of skin. Now, it just didn't end there in 1705 because then once you got this kind of racialized category, you end up having immigration policies that get shaped on this way. So in 1790, eligibility uh, to be a citizen was basically a free white person uh, for two years. So it's like as long as you were a free white person for two years, you can become a citizen. So that meant that black people and non-white people couldn't be citizens. So what does that f make it, like where does a Chinese person fit into that? Because that was the next group of immigrants that came in. So Asian people have, in our society, have been categorized both as black and categorized as white. You ever notice on the census they talk about um, non-Hispanic, white, uh, non-white and um, black Hispanic and things of that nature? Why does that mean anything? Because of what is meant in our society. So in many ways, what's happened from these laws and all these laws that have been passed up to Jim Crow up to present is like, and the way that we categorize things is that being white has legally meant something. And the legal actions has meant this economic opportunities uh, um, to own land and to pass on inheritance and things of that nature that has meant something. And our society has um, basically culturally been in a space where to be white culturally means to be at the center and to be black or non-white means to kind of be on the outside. So if you want to move up a society, you need to be able to be functionally and fluently culturally white. Does that make sense? So what whiteness ends up being is a currency um, of influence and privilege and things of that nature. Now here's the thing. What about the Jesus that we know? Who was Jesus of the Bible? Jesus of the Bible was born to an unwed young lady. And just like the way it was in that society, like uh, it's today, um, and that's, it was very shameful being an unwed teenage young girl. Jesus was born in a poor family. Jesus was born uh, in a time where they were committing genocide to, like, um, infant boys. So he had to be a refugee. He had to depend on um, uh, uh, um, hospitality of other folks. We don't have, they, they didn't have the same kind of political categories of refugees and immigrants like the way we have it. But when you just look at the narrative, they were a sojourner that were dependent upon people's hospitality. And so, if Jesus is made into our own image versus the Jesus of the Bible, then we're going to have some dissonance in how we engage in the world. Matter of fact, I didn't really see Jesus as a refugee and immigrant until I engaged with other people who were outsiders because I'm a native-born citizen. I didn't have those lenses on. But then as I began to engage with people that like, literally had to leave their life, I mean, leave their, leave their country to save their life. Or I've engaged with people who, because of where they were born, uh, things were very, very um, challenging, and they had to, like, for economic reasons, move to a different country. 
you know, I didn't see that Jesus that I love and worship was an immigrant or a refugee because I just didn't have those lenses on. So the question that we got to ask ourselves is like, what kind of Jesus do we worship? What kind of Jesus are we uh, um, uh, 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 discipling people in and how are we ordering our lives around this type of Jesus? Is it, if, if white Jesus is a Jesus of influence, power, and a currency towards privilege, or is he somebody who was a marginalized person that sent his ministry around people who are marginalized? This is a significant question that we have to ask ourselves because this has implications on how we do church. So you might be asking the question, what do we do with this information? And the clear answer is to come to the conference. <laughs> I think, like, diversifying our cell phone list, diversifying our reading sources, um, uh, um, understanding different narratives, I think is a really, really uh, um, key thing to kind of help us begin to get lenses to see something different. Um, that has been a really significant gift in my life. I could not be doing what I'm doing today if it wasn't for the fact that I lived in Chesterfield with the church in Gilpin Court and had my, you know, Gilpin had a partnership with Third Church. So I just went out to all of the different parts of the city. And then by the time I was in college, you know, I was, you know, playing organ at Western Assembly of God, helping David sing with, um, with Eternity Church, yeah. And, and, and I didn't even realize until I, I built relationship with, with, with um, David saying that there was a Western way of thinking about things and an Eastern way of thinking about things. I just thought the Western way was the normal way of doing it. Everybody else did it backwards, you know? <laughs> These are things that diversifying your cell phone list um, and diversifying your text message, people that you engage with will change your perspective. So that's interpersonal, but how does this work on an institutional level? This is something that we call the Shalom Continuum. Um, everybody wants Shalom. Shalom is this idea that of flourishing, of God weaving things back together the way he originally intended to be. And this is like, no matter like where you are in society, if you're poor, if you're rich, if you are um, 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 a native born or not native born, if, no matter what ethnic group you come from, Unless there is something wrong with your, your mental health, everybody wants flourishing. God wired us that way. And so if you're a Christian, there are ways that you think that flourishing happens. One is like having a right relationship with God. Um, there is um, questions of like justice or like, for example, like sex trafficking and things of that nature. That, that should not be. And so a Christian response to do is to try to do something to kind of bring things back the way they originally wanted to be. And, and this issue of racial reconciliation, a very similar thing where we want this to be the way where all people are made in the image of God and people are treated that way. Well, oftentimes what happens is, is that we just don't pay attention that we all come from a particular space. So when we drive, let's say, from the West End to go to chat, and we go to Tudor, we might, we don't oftentimes think, okay, I am engaging a cross-cultural situation. Like if we got on a plane to go to China, and if anybody does business in China, 
you actually go through some like cross-cultural lessons and you do some lessons about Chinese culture and you understand the story and the people and different things of that nature. But when we go from the West End to go to Chad or to go to East End Fellowship or different things of that nature, we don't do things to increase our cultural intelligence and how do we engage cross-culturally. See, this is, this is termed homogenous unit principle. There's this idea that we all come from a place that seems, quote, quote, normal to us. And in this third church experience, there are some assumptions that you all have in order to get along that are, quote, quote, normal to you all that you've kind of, like, there necessarily hasn't always been a committee meeting about it, but it just ends up being this. There have been a lot of committee meetings, but not on every single thing. But you've got to have these norms that you kind of agree to to say, hey, this is how we're going to, like, handle our children. This is how we're going to do our sermons. Service is going to be an hour. And if these things change, then there's a disruption of what happens. So here's some practical stuff for what you could do, and this is what's important for you to do as a community. You've got to ask yourself the question, who am I? Like, 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 I'm a male that has cultural implications. I'm a black male that has cultural implications. If you're white, you know, your age, uh, um, your socioeconomic space, your background. Are you northern or are you from the um, uh, south? Are you from the west coast or the east coast? Ask these questions and then ask yourself, what are my assumptions? What assumptions do I have? Because we all bring these things, and they aren't necessarily bad. They aren't necessarily like evil. They just are a thing. But if we don't pay attention to it, then we can begin to um, have some challenges. And so we move in order as we work towards Shalom. We need to move um, understanding a homogenous unit principle that we're operating under. And we need to move towards diversity. But it's kind of, you just don't jump from diversity towards Shalom. This is a conversation that like almost every American couple has the first year. They say, hey, um, what are we going to do for Christmas this year? <laughs> and you say this, well, we're going to do it the normal way. That's the way my family always does it. <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, what other, what other way is there to do it? <laughs> and so then you find out that people do do things differently about Christmas than when you do it. And you end up having these, like, back and forth type situations where, you know, we might do Christmas at your parents' house this year, my parents' house this year, and eventually you end up finding your own rhythm about what, what do you do, but there's a lot of intentionality and compromise that has to happen in the process. It's kind of awkward at the beginning, but you eventually find your rhythm. Well, this is, this is what diversity does. There, when you're operating on the homogenous unit principle, there are assumptions that, that you just can resolve quickly because everybody relatively agrees to things. But when you invite diversity into the space, you begin to have more tensions arise, and you got to hold things in tension a little bit more. Things aren't going to resolve as quickly the more diversity that you have. So here's what this looks like in the context of a church. For some people, things that seem like a political issue for one group of people is a pastoral concern for another group of people. And so things that, like, they're particularly within certain demographics to say, hey, we shouldn't talk about politics at church. Or if we talk about politics, we need to talk about pro-life or we shouldn't talk. I mean, like, just there's certain things that we can talk about, but 
other things that we can't talk about because it's too political. For example, immigration. You know, so because I'm friends with people in the Hispanic community, you could not go to Hispanic church and not talk about immigration. You know, you, you could not not talk about, um, there's a lot of conflation going on with Muslim relationships and Arabic relationships and things of that nature. And if I'm an Arabic person, or if I'm a like, Hispanic person, or even like, I even tell you for me, because I was on staff at a, at a um, I was at one point on staff at a, a white church um, during a week of Ferguson and Eric Garner and all that type of stuff. And so when I'm in this space, because I understand the cultural thing, I am, I am in this space right now communicating in a white culture um, methodology. Now, because I'm doing that and I'm fluent in that language, doesn't mean that I don't experience this world as a black man. And so for me, when I saw Eric Garner get choked to death, and I don't understand everything about the legal system. I'm just saying, like, man, I just saw a guy get taken down with some cigarettes. He got choked to death. Like, the way that I experience that is a total, just a different way of experiencing it. And so then when I see Ferguson, like, it, it's, it's, it's burning and the riot is going on, and it was already economically depressed space, and I know history, and I know every time there's a, a riot within a poor urban community, uh, and I live in a, um, it's gentrifying, but relatively poor urban community. Um, I, I mean, the way I'm experiencing that is, 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 is just tearing me up. Because I know after the fact, these communities don't get built back up again. And so I, I'm internalizing all that, and I'm on staff, I'm leading worship at this church, and I'm at a white, predominantly white church, affluent church, and I can't, this is, for that week, it was Advent week, and we're talking about peace, and that was something that was like boiling up inside of me, but I couldn't say anything. I couldn't, and I, I just like said a prayer, and then I got a bunch of emails from folks that said, hey, you shouldn't be too political, and I didn't think I was being political. It was just what was heavy on my heart. I live in a community, and I experience this world as a black man, and, and it's just, and it's complex for me, and I, I needed my church family or the people who were Christians in my body to kind of be with me and experience this with me. And so it's complex. It is very, very complex. One of my jokes, and I love Bill Hall, we're going to eat um, lunch together tomorrow. And like, but when, when Bill was in Churchill, you know, I mean, Bill, he cried when Ronald Reagan, like, you know, he's, he's a, he loves Ronald Reagan. So, so I have to say, I said, you know, Bill Hall um, is our diversity at Eastern Fellowship, you know? And so, <laughs> but, you know, it's, but we're, see, we're brothers, you know? And, like, the things that we talk about and the way that we engage with one another, they can, they can no longer be political issues. They have to be pastoral concerns on both sides and all sides of it. So that makes things very complex. It makes it very, very hard. It makes it very, very difficult. But um, I think the Lord, wants this, the Lord wants to see this to flourish. So here's something that I heard a young person say 
to me. Hey, if you don't care about me Monday through Saturday, it's hard to hear you preach to me on Sunday. This has to be a church that Monday through Saturday, um, it's, it's really wrestling with the messiness of the world in which we're dealing with. So here's some practical stuff you could do. You can increase your cultural intelligence. That means you got to read from diverse spaces. You might not agree to what they uh, are saying, but this is a practice that I've really been trying to do for the past, I say, 15 years or so. I try not to make a decision about or form my opinion until I've read the best of both sides of the argument, and I can articulate both sides of the argument as, fa as if I agree to that argument. And then after that, I'll make my decision about what it is. And I, I kind of come into it, I know there's some things, everybody has a bias. But I think sometimes we give the best of our side of the argument, and we give the worst of the other person's side of the argument, and we just say, like, hey, what they're saying is stupid. But we all, people are very intelligent. And there's a reason why people think the way that they think. And so we need to increase at least our cultural intelligence to be fluent in different spaces. The other thing is, is that as much reading as you could do, as many friends as you could have, there's a limit of what you could get your expertise on. And so what you, what you need to do is and develop some cross-cultural skills. So depending on whatever situation that I'm, I'm in, because I'm hybrid culture, you know, I can at least kind of jump in and, and, and know a, cu a couple of cues. It's like if you've traveled internationally, you know, the same rules that apply in Israel isn't the same rules that apply in Thailand and the same rules that apply in South America. But if you've traveled internationally, the more you kind of realize, hey, I need to pay attention. I can ask certain questions, understand how to engage cross-culturally. You don't have to get on the plane. Just go in a five-mile dire direction anywhere, and you'll have a lot of cross-cultural experiences. So increase your cultural awareness. Here's a couple of lists. I mean, but this people are made in the image of God, and so we are just very multidimensional. But I mean, here's a few things. You got race and ethnicity. You got nationality. You got education, socioeconomic, gender, generational, even theology. So like, let's, let's look at this, how cultural, this whole, whole cultural aspect relates to like sin and salvation. So in Western culture, it's kind of a more individualistic identity. But in the way in, in Eastern culture, it's more of a collective identity. And then there's some other cultures that are kind of animist, animistic. And so that means it's kind of like more of a supernatural, like they... They believe in like evil and evil spirits and things of that nature. Now, in a Western culture, the way we present the gospel we do with sin and salvation is both, you know, the sin of guilt and innocence. So like even in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians 1 says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin. Like that's an emphasis on the gospel that we oftentimes preach about the forgiveness of sin. And God made us alive in Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. Like these are common Western uh, theological presentations of the gospel. Where in the Eastern culture, where it's more of a collective identity, there's this whole idea of honor and shame. And so it says, in love, he predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ. So this whole idea of adoption and family, it takes on a different thing when you're coming from an honor-shame culture. 
or you're no longer foreigners or aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. But what about in a culture where, you know, for example, like Haiti or something like that, where they deal with a more of this like supernatural reality? Um, it says, the power is like the working of his mighty strength, which the uh, exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Or be strong in the Lord and in the power of his, uh, in the mighty power, but on the full, put on the full armor of God that you may take your stand against the devil's schemes. Do you see, like, I've read these scriptures a ton, but I'm looking at it through my own cultural lens, and I could be talking to somebody from a different cultural experience, and the more I'm kind of versed in this cross-cultural type of ways, I maybe could know or, or, or interpret how they're seeing and perceiving certain things. You see in Ephesians, you know, you see Paul, he, he's really great at being hybrid cultured. You know, even something as simple as his greeting, grace and peace. He was speaking to both the churches of Gentiles and Jews. So grace is, is a... Um, uh, uh, a Greek word, charis, and he's saying like the Greek word to the Gentiles, charis, grace, but then to the Jews, shalom, that's peace. So even in his greetings to people and, and the way salutations is grace and peace, or even in this text, I pray that the eyes of our heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope. See, that, that hope is that innocence guilt-like uh, type of um, narrative, that Western kind of individualist kind of narrative, that hope that we can have through the salvation and forgiveness of sins, to which he has called you the riches of his glorious inheritance. That's the honor, shame aspect of it, being a part of the family of God and the saints and his incomparable great power for us who believe that power is over evil. So we can't just go from understanding how much the principle towards diversity, towards getting to shalom. This it just doesn't happen this way because inevitably conflict emerges. And so what we need to do is have a, a framework of reconciliation. Reconciliation is more than resolving tension. Reconciliation is way more comprehensive than this. And this is something that is important for us to understand. Over the past 30 years, the way that we've done church growth strategies has been about understanding what the homogenous unit principle is for the demographic of which we're in. So we try to find a location in the zip code that will mean that the church can be economically sustainable. And then we find young families who can fit in that category. And we try to keep, you know, that, that group ends up growing kind of older and older. And then we try to get that same kind of demographic for the next generation to kind of keep the church going. And it's all based on the homogenous unit principle. And so what happens is when we talk about diversity, it's oftentimes about the people we want to be diverse, the people that can assimilate within our dominant culture. Does that make sense to everybody? And so when somebody brings up something, a conflict emerges, it's about resolving that conflict, like reconciliation ends up being like conflict resolution basically to the dominant cultural narrative. I want to suggest to you that there is a malformation that happens in that because the dominant culture becomes Lord of that situation versus Jesus. And so what we want to do is understand where we're coming from, move towards diversity, engage in reconciliation. So we have to develop a theology of reconciliation 
and a practice of reconciliation. And as we do this, we can work our way to shalom. Shalom is true flourishing. And we can't figure out, uh, we got to realize that, that we've uh, um, got here today because of the culture that was made yesterday. So if we want to do anything different, that means that we have to make new culture today in order to have a different culture tomorrow. Does that make sense to everybody? So the way, and, and Andy Crouch has articulated this way better than, than I have, and I say this book he just came out called Strong a Week is really worth getting, but it's just that true flourishing for humanity comes both when the strong and weak work together. So what this looks like is that in our, in our side, in order to kind of really seek shalom, we got to collaboratively create new culture with both the strong and the weak people of your community. Like, just because we have economic resources doesn't mean that people with economic resources could be on the committee and have true flourishing. We need some people around the table that experiences, like, uh, 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 weakness within their culture to help shape it. And, it's the co and, and, and if you have a whole group of folks who are, like, culturally, economically, socially weak, they can't be around the table all by themselves and have true flourishing either because there are other resources that are needed. You really need both in order to have true flourishing. So these are the things that, as an institution, we want to invite you to. We want to invite you to this transformative way of living that you don't just try to jump from the homogenous union principle towards shalom, but you go through this process of understanding diversity and reconciliation and working together with both the strong and the weak people of your community for true flourishing. Again, it starts with your cell phone. It starts with having some people who are uh, socially, economically weak in your cell phone, politically, whatever the case may be, whatever division that you have, starting this way, then even more so, we really want Third Church to be an Acts 2 church. There were three things that happened to Acts 2 as we close. They had unity and diversity versus unity through assimilation. When you operate on the homogenous unit principle, you do unity through assimilation. When you go after the biblical model of the church, you try to find unity and diversity, and, it's, and that is glorifying God. It's complex, it's hard. But that, people say, you know what? I don't know why these people and these people are together. It has to be God. <laughs> Sacrificial living for people on the margins. That was what you saw in Acts 2. And then becoming an authentic, multi-ethnic community. I don't know if y'all remember this, this um, movie, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner with Sidney Poitier? And the idea was um, this young lady was um, about the, I think about it kind of get engaged and it was gonna meet the, uh, her, her fiance. And it's kind of the story of this like white family getting accustomed to the idea of her marrying a black man. This movie was redone with Bernie Mac and Ashton Kutcher when the roles were reversed. It's really funny. But here's the thing. When somebody becomes your family there is a certain, when those in-laws, the conversation changes. When your son-in-law or your daughter-in-law 
um, becomes family. There's just like a certain kind of awkwardness that you got to be intentional about in order to try to be true family. But then there comes a point when they get married and you're like, man, you know, whether I like it or not, I'm stuck with them. (laughs) But this is the thing where I've noticed the biggest conversion is when that couple has grandchildren. What then happens is that you see, if you got like a little brown baby girl, granddaughter that you love to death and you would move heaven and earth to do anything for them, you then begin to notice when you go to the store that they have a whole bunch of white doll babies. And they don't have doll babies that look like her and don't have the kind of hair that she has. And they're all part of this dominant culture that we just got finished talking about. And so you begin to wrestle with these things and you see, like, nobody has to tell you that, but what's happened is that you've engaged into the space where you are now becoming an authentic, multi-ethnic family. And so what I want to encourage you all to go on a journey of transformation where some of it's going to be awkward in the early stages and you're going to say racist stuff and stupid stuff and, and things of that nature. And the great gift that we have as Christians is confession and repentance. So that's okay. Go through that awkward stage and phase and understand and practice reconciliation. But then there's going to come a point in time where it's not going to be that awkward thing and you're going to be able to be family and you'll be able to identify the white doll babies on your own. So thank you so much. And I'll be around. I want to encourage you to come again, come to the conference. We're going to um, have plenty of time for people to process. This was a fire hose situation within an hour. Let me pray and time will come up. Lord, I just thank you for this time. I pray that you uh, would give ears to hear uh, what your spirit is saying. And I just pray for um, just not guilt, but conviction of the spirit. And, and, and give people clear direction of what the next step of faithfulness is. Pray nobody would get overwhelmed by the greatness of this, but just say, like, hey, this is what we can do uh, to make one step of faithfulness, and we trust you to do the rest of it. We thank you for these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.